Welcome to Terminal Talk, a podcast on mainframe and mainframe-related topics. I'm Frank. I am Jeff. And with us today is a mid-career mainframer uh, named Steve Perva. Steve, can you talk a little bit about what you do and where you are? Sure. So as Frank had mentioned, my name's Steve Perva. I can sometimes be known as Steven, um, and I spend most of my time interacting with ZOS, I guess is a decent way to put my role. So I work in a company called Insono as the senior mainframe innovation engineer, which is a fancy way of saying that I try to make ZOS seem more interesting at times. So what I really do is I do <clears throat> the architecture and the implementation of ZOS-based solutions in order to make our clients' business needs uh, a reality through different product offerings that we can sell to them. So I cobble together different solutions and show them how it can scale with our business. And that's that's the professional side of what I do. And some <laughs> would say that's the less interesting side, but I would probably agree with that. Um, <laughs> the personal side of what I do is really around being a mainframe, specifically ZOS advocate, and doing all kinds of crazy advocacy things like speaking at conferences, building communities. I do a whole bunch of uh, main, what I call mainframe culture initiatives. These are things like t-shirts, stickers, um, just talking on social media about mainframes, specifically ZOS again, uh, all the time. So I probably get really exhausting for those who spectate me in any way. <laughs> well, and you also, um, you started that Discord channel, right? Or that that whole Discord environment. Yeah. So I run a community called the System Z Enthusiast Discord. And it is a it is a Discord channel. For those who don't know what Discord is, Discord is kind of like, uh, let's just say, modern day IRC, if anyone's that's ringing <laughs> bells with anybody, right? Um, yeah. I don't know what that would be the equivalent of. IBM Main. Let's just talk about IBM Main if since we have to, apparently. Um, <laughs> it's kind of like a real-time mailing list, if you will, for those of you who are ingrained in, in kind of the traditional way that things once worked. Um, Discord is kind of a chat program, so people can have conversations in real time. And the beauty of the Systems E Enthusiast Discord is that it's supposed to be a hospitable environment for people of all different skill levels, enthusiasm levels, and um, interests to be able to have safe, educational, not hopefully non-biased conversations about mainframe technology, right? Yeah, and th so one of the reasons that that I wanted you on uh, the show is you, you seem to have your fingers in a lot of different pies on this, and and I wanted to make sure I'm so that glad you said pies. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to make sure we got a lot of that out. And and so um, over the course of, of the, the show, I'd like you to kind of talk a little bit about um, how how I can get involved in each of these things, right? But, but up front, I, I wanted to start with, you know, when we talk about mainframers, we generally talk about the people who are new to the environment, uh, the kids, Mm -hmm. Or we talk about the people like me who are, you know, really close to death. <laughs> and, and so I thought it would be really cool to talk to somebody who kind of 
you've been doing this for a number of years. You're, you're, you wouldn't be considered a kid anymore. Right. And you, you know, you, you're far enough away from, you know, death. Yeah. Old, oldster <laughs> death. Um, and so it would Let's be, just say obsolescence. <laughs> obsolescence. Or, Planned obsolescence. Or, or perhaps retirement someday. I don't know. So um, yes. can you talk a little bit about what what it's like to be where you are in your career as a mainframer? Yeah, absolutely. That's a really interesting question because if you ask any mainframer that's been doing this for decades, they're like, that 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 kid is a, a little punk, right? He doesn't know <laughs> anything about anything. And if you ask somebody who's new, they're like, that's what the ideal mm-hmm. uh, late tenure mainframer should look like, right? <laughs> uh, but, but I have an interesting, I think, interesting story and in how I kind of view computing that lends well to being a, what I call a mid-tenure, you all call a mid-career mainframer. Uh, and, and that is that <clears throat> I grew up with DOS six, right? My dad, my dad was a, he used to work for a restaurant chain called Hardee's. For those of you unfamiliar with Hardee's, it's a, (laughs) it's similar to like a a McDonald's or a Burger King or something like that. But, but it used to be uh, a different quality, whatever. But anyway, um, so he, he was a manager for a Hardee's restaurant and then he became ingrained in the computing side of the world because apparently that was a big thing. Uh, around the time when he was a youngster and <clears throat> he took a loan out to to purchase a a computer and he bought an old I believe it was a Toshiba laptop and this thing was a laptop but it you know probably weighed more than my desktop <laughs> and and so he he had this thing and he would bring it home and he got really into computing and I got into what I call like old school computing and those a lot of people when you're in the mainframe, again, this is the problem. I talk about old school and I say DOS 6 and there's people out there like, oh, that young chicken, right? They're like, <laughs> what, is, what is DOS 6? Goodness gracious. Like that was just five years ago. Um, but so I got really into computing. I would just pump in, you know, three and a quarter disks into this computer and just find anything that was .exe and just run it. It was just completely reckless. And it's a good thing to do to a family computer right there. <laughs> I, I, I loved every second of it, right? And and I would I would just pour through these boxes upon boxes of of floppy disks at the time. That was to me, that was a floppy disk. It wasn't the proper floppy disk. It was a, you know the the more firm version of it. Right. Uh, but but then I started to to learn about like making games. I learned about Telnet and and multi user dungeons or MUDs and and I kind of learned old school, what I will call old school computing or fundamental computing, like the manipulation of, of bits and bytes through, um, through a lot of that. And then I started to learn things like Linux. I remember my first copy of, of Linux I purchased from Walmart and one of those big monstrous eight and a half by 11 or eight and a quarter by 11 boxes. You remember those big old software boxes we used to get? Um, and it was a copy of Red Hat Linux and you had to literally go into the store and purchase it. I don't remember if it came on CD or on disc at the time, but I just remember it actually cost money. <laughs> and yep. um, and I got that so I could run my own version of a multi-user dungeon on, on a little desktop PC that my dad had had. And that taught me more about distributed computing and server infrastructure 
And then when I got into <clears throat> my professional life, which was as I, as I got into school, I started working for small businesses, doing things like fixing printer problems when they had like Novell Netware. And IPX was like the, the predominant printing protocol before TCPIP. And then once TCPIP started coming along, I started fiddling with a lot of that. And so to try to get to the point of your question, I have be, effectively became this bridge between mainframe computing, like the old version of mainframe computing, which is like TSO, ISPF, all of the, all of the traditional access methods that people have grown to love and appreciate and most people associate with ZOS specifically. And I also have this idea of what the future should look like with like web-based interfaces and API access and, and all of the things that you kind of learn to love about distributed computing. And so I'm kind of smack dab in the middle, basically translating between two generations of people. So I try to advocate so that new tenure folks will understand the history and the heritage of why certain decisions were made a certain way and trying to translate as to why somebody might not want to use ISPF editor for the rest of their career. <laughs> so it, your, your first attempt at getting um, Linux on that machine, you had been a, a user on a system on someone else's system and said, Hey, I want, I want to control this or, was that your first time on a Unix type system like that? So I used to play a video game that Sierra Online made called The Realm. And mm -hmm. I got really into this idea of like server client infrastructure. And I was like, I want to make this. I want to be a part of this. And I started looking things up and reading about it. And I only had Windows at my disposal at the time. And I don't even know what flavor of Windows it was. Um, but anyway, I remember downloading like a, a TGZ file, you know, a compressed tarball, if you will, and <clears throat> trying to install this software on my Windows computer and everyone on the internet was like, you need, you need Linux to do this. And I told my dad, I was probably eight or nine years old. I don't know. I was like, I need Linux. And, and he was like very gung ho about this because he wanted me to be interested in what he was interested in. So he supported me through this whole like nonsense and i remember getting linux and trying to install it and if you remember like the the initial iterations of installing linux on desktop computers it was an absolute nightmare i remember being so confused by partitions and being uh. just completely swamped imagine being like a 10 year old kid trying to understand how big your boot partition should be your dev partition and all this stuff i just didn't get any of it and i just remember being like frustrated to the point of like feeling heat because I didn't get it. And I just basically demanded myself to get this thing. And I figured it out somehow through just plunking away and being able to have a computer that my dad had left over. And he was just like, do whatever you want with this thing. And so I was just constantly reformatting this poor drive, whatever it was, and just constantly messing with it and, and trying to get this system up and running just so I could get this TGZ file so I could unpack it and start to run my own little server. So I'm going to try and get you in trouble with as many people as possible. Nice. Oh boy. So what is it about um, those older mainframes that really you find frustrating or angering? 
So I think that, well, one, I'm going to try to dance as well as possible. You could try to get me as trouble, in trouble as much as you will, but I will attempt my best to be politically correct. And I've, I've learned through the last 15 years now that it's impossible for me to survive unscathed. Um, what frustrates me about, and when I say mainframe, just keep in mind, I'm constantly referring to ZOS because that's the area in which I interact and play the most, right? Um what frustrates me about it is, is that the user experience is very well designed for people who like to wrestle with technology, right? It seems like, and it reminds me a lot of my childhood, where all joy that I got from technology came through a little bit of blood, sweat, and tears, right? So um, <clears throat> if you remember old video game systems, there was always a bit of work to be done before there was either, in this case, productivity, right? Or, or, or fun, right? So you had to make sure that the TV was on channel three. You had to make sure the little coaxial like thing was, was plugged in. And you had to make sure that the, the switch was flipped to three instead of four. And there was work to be done. And if the game didn't work, you had to pull it out. You had to either cotton swab it or like everybody knows, you blow in the darn thing and yep. you stick it back in and you push the power button until that gray screen becomes... Super Mario Brothers or whatever, right? And <clears throat> I sometimes see that as, as the interaction most people have with, with ZOS. They want to do something simple. I want to run a program. Well, you got to remember, there's, there's JCL you have to know. There's all of this stuff you have to know just to run a simple program, whereas the user experience on any other platform is simply not that, right? It's like, just execute the program then. Just... To either tap on it on your phone or double click on it, right? And and that's that's probably what frustrates me the most. And second to that is how insistent we, the corporate we as an industry, are in making sure that that remains the case forever. Yeah, yeah. I think that's one of the things that I find so frustrating is a community of people who who just refuse to think that anything besides ISPF, JCL, and RACs have any value on the platform. And how, how could you possibly understand uh, anything about the machine if you don't speak fluent JCL? Yeah, well, the answer was revealed years ago. Uh, we, we saw the answer. And anyone else coming up with anything else? You don't ha you don't have the right answer. You just don't get it. Yeah, yeah. don't you don't you know we we figured this out before. <laughs> it was, it's funny because I remember when I started uh, back when the world world was black and white. Um, How did you fit those tablets, <laughs> the stone tablets, through the punch card reader? <laughs> it was it was hard back then, but um, that uh, how dare you use racks when C list can do everything you know you'd ever need to do right between jcl and c list why would you ever use anything like rex um and and today this that same kind of devotion to to rex why would you ever use python i can do everything i need to do in rex and it's like mm -hmm. great it's great that you can do that i'm i'm, I'm happy for you but that's not what new people learn. It's not a language that's at their fingertips. 
And right. why should they have to learn something new just to use the platform? And and that to me is the most frustrating um, is this attitude that, you know, just, just learn this one thing. It only takes an hour to learn JCL. Somebody actually said that to me. It only takes an hour to learn JCL. What's the big deal? Right. Well, you know, and, counterpoint to that. Can you imagine telling somebody of, of your age, yeah, I, don't worry. I spent an hour learning JCL. I should be able to handle this. Can you imagine how much you get yelled at for that? <laughs> yeah. Well, let, let me kind of, um, I want to kind of back into this question here. When you're working in your, your current role is, I'm um, sorry, what is it? it, it transformational is a really cool <laughs> title. I want to make sure. Mainframe innovation engineer. That's Ooh. awesome. I love that. Um, <laughs> yeah. do, do you find it is a, a, cultural and technological push in parallel or does one need to come before the other or how do you how do you approach that that conversation so i am kind of stuck in the middle right that song stuck in the middle with you right i'm i'm just kind of trapped in it (laughs) i'm trapped in it all the time so i tailor my messaging to the demographic to whom i'm speaking right so if i'm talking to a new tenure person I try to incite in them confidence to to speak on behalf of or advocate on behalf of what they want to use to be productive. And when I'm talking to somebody who's perhaps sunsetting their career, I'm speaking to them about maintaining their productivity and about passing their knowledge along. So I don't know if I had the answer to which one should come first, cultural or technological, I think that that ultimately you have to lay the technological foundation first and then you have to try to build a groundswell of cultural uh, initiative to make certain things a reality. And, 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 and I think that it's really simple to categorize people into, oh yeah, the late tenure people don't want to do this. And and I have found that in some cases that's true, in some cases that's not, right? And I, there's always exceptions to the rule. I've spoken to a number of folks who are late tenure on their way out the door, and all they want to do is get their hands on Python so that they can start seeing what the rage is about. And what I do is I enable them. I give them an ID on one of the systems that I work on, and I have it set up so that they can be immediately productive. I was watching somebody write Python code today in ISPF editor on a screen share. <laughs> And it was probably one of the most, like, no offense to this person. It was very frustrating. I was like, you know, you can write this with other tools, right? And they were like, oh, my gosh, you have to show me how to do this. And I was like, that's that's what I live for. I live for these moments. My entire career was wow. effectively built around those moments where I show people what we'll call the, quote, unquote, the light, right? I show them the light. Like, this is what gets me fired up every single morning to work on ZOS. And if and as hard as that is to imagine people, like I get excited about this stuff. I get really enthusiastic about it. And I have so much fun doing it because I've witnessed people do things with ZOS that they thought were only possible with a distributed system or some non-ZOS system. And then when it just works the way it works everywhere else, they feel like their whole life has been transformed and the way they see the platform has been transformed. And unfortunately, half the time that that little aha moment is birthed out of shadow IT, sadly. Right. 
Well, it has to be, right? Because the the way uh, traditional people see the platform, they, they don't see it as a a playground. They never see it as a playground. And and so, you know, they're they're always so leery about making changes or or driving things because we've we've turned the platform into this kind of um the the production paradise which means mm-hmm. i can't touch it <laughs> because mm-hmm. i can't ruin paradise yeah and and i think that i've i've spoken about that a number of times and i have a few things on the docket going forward to talk about and this this message in my head keeps replaying every time i think about what i'm going to talk about with people I always keep thinking of the phrase, I want you to remember a time where you were excited about technology because I think people kind of get caught up in the machinations of what they do every single day for a living that they're not considering why they had fun with it way back when, why it was exciting to them. And they need to pass that excitement on to somebody else. If they can't find it within themselves, I've found that sometimes teaching it to somebody else can really ignite that excitement. And and like I just said, I, these are the moments that I live for. This is what I want because I get excited about it. I come at it with a whole fresh perspective every time I see somebody get that aha moment. And it invigorates me to keep wanting to do all this insane stuff that I do, like making apparel, making stickers, making talks, videos, doing a podcast. And and this is all stuff that like, it's easy to not want to do that stuff if I don't care about what I do. That's great and well, but I have a community I want to run. I have a belief in a platform that I've spent my whole life, well, my whole professional life working on. And I want to just keep kind of breathing into it because it's something that just brings me joy. It's the fun part of switching it to channel three, right? I've, I've gotten to channel three. I've got the coaxial thingy plugged in. I've blown on the cartridge and here I am playing the darn game. And hopefully making it easier for people to play the game who don't want to do all of those things. Right. Right. That kind of gets me into this, this area here. Like uh, when, when even uh, a youngster like myself (laughs) was getting involved in computers, I had to worry about like, you know, getting the, the IRQs set up. Right. And (laughs) like there was still a, a physical and software based challenge to get stuff running where now with Mm -hmm. everything being a lot more things being online service oriented, it's, it, it either works or it doesn't. And if it doesn't, it's because you have a bad Wi-Fi connection. (laughs) <laughs> and and you talk a lot about like the the joy of getting something to work, you know, finding that, oh, it is we do have to use channel four for some reason or, <laughs> you know, getting that uh, getting that red hat installed. Do you think there are less op- or fewer opportunities to to have that f- rewarding journey with the way that software is today? Absolutely. And I'm glad that you asked that because I've thought about this a number of times because it's always made me wonder about the future of troubleshooting. And Mm -hmm. what happens? And a good example of this is I have a Nintendo Switch um, and I have a four-year-old daughter, right? And she'll walk up to me with the Nintendo Switch. And if you've used a Nintendo Switch, perhaps you haven't. The first thing you do when you push the power button, it asks you to push the same button three times. And that's to, quote unquote, unlock the machine so that you could start to play your game or whatever. My daughter knows nothing about anything technology-wise. And unfortunately, I haven't indoctrinated her into the world of ZOS quite yet. (laughs) <laughs> but she will walk up to me with this device 
and she'll hand it to me. And if I act like I don't know what to do, just to see what happens in a kid's mind, she will literally be like, dad, you have to push this button three times. And it doesn't care what button you push as long as you push the same button three times. And she knows how to do that. It's so intuitive to her that she just does it and she can navigate to a game and she can tap on it. And if something doesn't go right, she knows she'll just hit the power button and start this whole process over again because the next time around, things just work. And it did kind of call into question this idea that you were just asking about, Jeff. It's like, will people in the future have this opportunity to to troubleshoot, to go through these these kind of motions to have to figure things out? And And I'm not entirely sure because the way I see it is perhaps troubleshooting is a different is is a different uh idea in the future and it's not like okay these are the symptoms that i check <laughs> right you know but i i'm curious to find out and i and i don't see that with the next generation of of mainframers coming in they have this troubleshooting mentality so it hasn't become pervasive enough that things just work that it just simply doesn't compute to other people that things would not work um but I don't know. I think we'll always have generations of puzzle solvers that are coming into the industry, regardless of what that puzzle might be, right? Yeah, I, I believe that we will end up with mainframe enthusiasts, just like we have people who are are car enthusiasts, or you know that, that there will always be people who are interested in figuring out stuff. And I I think that the mainframe will always provide that opportunity because there's, there is just so many knobs and switches and, and dials um, that, that there's always something new to learn and play with. And I, I don't think you really get that on other platforms. There's no, um, there, like you said, it's more of a finite thing um, because the interest in creating that is no longer around. There's, there is no, oh, no, good enough. It, mm-hmm. oh, I just turn it off and turn it back on again, right? I mean, I, I, I do believe that's a, a pervasive thing on other platforms. And because we don't think that way as mainframers, <clears throat> you, you'd never call IBM service and have them say, did you turn it off and turn it back on? Again? <laughs> Unless it was to a test to see if you were worthy <laughs> Of the yeah. top-notch support that you were about to receive. <laughs> no, and I think that I think that there's this scare in the industry that if we start talking about access methods like ZOSMF or or even Zoe, for example, or or anything like that, or SSH, heaven forbid, um, <laughs> that we're going to lose the heritage of of everything else. But I literally witnessed people in the System Z enthusiast Discord shameless plug that <laughs> are putting these systems together that are no longer in sport support. They're purchasing them. They're stuffing them in their, in their garage They're stuffing them in their basement and they're making them work. And those people are never going to go away. There's always going to be somebody curious. There's a vintage game computer gaming community out there. People putting in like uh Pentium two slot one processors into computers that they're finding on eBay and playing the original Doom or whatever on the original hardware and and experiencing that. And that's always going to exist. But, I mean, 
The question is, can you build a whole professional community around it? I don't think so. Um, and I think that's why the impetus for having quote unquote modern access methods is so necessary for us as an industry because we can't rely on a few good folks to do the right thing, to learn these heritage access methods, but they're always going to be there. I, I, I do a talk on ZOAU, which is my, probably one of my favorite products that IBM yep. offers. And I always talk about how those heritage access methods are a part of everything that we see today, right? Windows command shell. How many times you fire that up a day, whenever you're using a windows PC, um, the terminal when you're using a Mac or which which Mac is is a bad example because its original access method is a graphical user interface, right? right. Um, or or like any any Linux flavor, you can always jump to a terminal and do some power user stuff. And people do this all the time. And it's not, I don't say never going to go anywhere. We learned how um, absolute statements can absolutely ruin us in computing, but it's going to be there for as long as. I imagine, I expect TSO ISPF will just always be there. I've heard people be afraid that it's going to be deprecated or, or removed <laughs> from the system. I'm like, you are f probably misunderstanding the staying power of access methods, origin access methods completely. You can't uh, write off muscle memory. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And it's just an incredible productivity tool. Whenever I advocate for different access methods, I'm always like, do whatever makes you the most productive. I'm going to say that using VS Code or ZOSMF is a good way to do whatever. But if you're much faster using ISPF editor, then by all means, use that. I don't care as long as you're happy because it's your career. It's not mine. Right. I'm going to use my method. You use your method. There's, We're always going to be fighting over whose is better, but ultimately it lands on what makes you the most productive whomever you are yeah, that's what i tell people right if you want to use your your inferior way of doing it that's fine with me <laughs> i don't have a problem with that right if it makes you happy go for it <laughs> so where, where do you see the the area of of, of most inroads with uh changing hearts and minds in in this world so I think that for me, it's, it's sharing my passion for things because I know that a lot of, of late tenure people can understand that I appreciate what they do and I appreciate the technology that they use. And I took the time to understand it and I've used it and I've experienced it. But at the same time that I can get so passionate about whatever other thing I'm doing, really kind of ignites a curiosity in people that that you don't often see through just doing your job. So I think I think that everyone wants to remember why they like what they do, right? And I think that everyone wants to be a part of of a certain kind of culture. And witnessing that type of attitude is what really gets people interested in trying something new or doing something a little different because they trust me because they say, oh, you've done your homework. You understand the way I do it. And you're not just telling me to do it your way. Right. right? And I think that that's, there's a lot of value there in, in getting, earning that trust between generations of people. And, and one of the, 
you know, you, you've spent a little time talking about the what the things that, that some of us older people um, do that, that kind of make it difficult. What are what are some things that you see early tenure mainframers doing or saying that that you that really kind of frustrates you? Oh man, so now you want me to look like the old tenure person. Yeah, you're real, he's just trying to get you in trouble. Yeah, well, yeah, well I already tried fine. to get him in trouble with the old people. Let me try and get him. Oh, we got we got to get some guests under this episode. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, um I think that I think that expecting things to to be a certain way, you know, uh because here here's I'm going to go on a little bit of a tirade. Something that drives me a bit a bit batty is that when we experience the education, what what canned education we offer the the larger world with experiencing ZOS or IBM Z systems or whatever, right? We offer them a tailored, curated experience of what these things are. So let's say you log on to a platform like IBM Z Explorer, fantastic platform, super fun to play around on, love it. But the experience that someone gets using IBM Z Explorer and the experience they're likely to get in their first ZOS job are very different, mm-hmm. right? And there's a transitory period that takes place. That's that culture and that technological shift that you were talking about earlier, Jeff, that has to happen to get from what you experience, what you will likely experience. It is the year 2023. <laughs> is what you will likely experience working on ZOS today and what you've experienced with a platform like IBM Z Explorer. So something that might kind of be abrasive is if you come into a place, you've experienced what it can be, and you demand that to be now, but you don't consider it through the historical lens, right? And, and, and I know a lot of people, a lot of new tenure people or next generation, whatever you want to call them, they will simply say, why was this ever configured this way? Right. And it's like, well, because the technology that you're used to didn't exist when this was configured. So somebody had to make a choice to create that. And right now we're kind of in this period where we're tearing down some of this technical debt, things that people created out of necessity because the technology just simply did not exist. And we're replacing it with reference architectures that we've tested over time in different platforms. And not respecting that history and at least keeping that in mind as you enter into this field is going to probably cause you a lot of friction. You don't do, and if I can offer any advice to anybody listening about this is do not completely bash on something until you at least have a vague understanding of why it was implemented a certain way when it was implemented. Yeah, that's fair. I'm, I, I think it's really easy to misunderstand um, why things were put together. And, and it always annoyed me um, when, whenever you talk to a mainframer um, when I was starting out, um, they felt like you had to know the entire history of everything before you, um, before you could use anything, and and so that that was always very annoying. And still, I think, you know, when I hear um, 
guys my age and older talk about it. Like, well, in the beginning, there were cards. I'm like, yeah, I don't need to know that to be productive here. Um, and and I get why people want you to understand that we had cards and there were eight of columns and that's why things are the way they are in JCL. And okay, okay, that's two minutes next, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, so I, it's a it's a hard tightrope to walk and. And a lot of us old guys want to, to to relive the old days. I remember when we used to, you know, that's, <laughs> can be it can be a bit much to somebody who's new. Right. Yeah. On on the other hand, as someone who works in technical training, um, one of my favorite things is just saying, "No, actually, we can we can take those first five chapters and make that three sentences, and it will have the <laughs> same net effect at the end of the day." Right. Yeah. So we're getting the it's. It's well past the bottom of the hour here, but I was, I was kind of hoping you mentioned a whole bunch of things, and I wanted to make sure you had an opportunity to plug those things, you know, <laughs> like things like seven nines and and the Discord. Can you just take a, a couple of seconds out um, as we start to wrap up and talk about some of that? Absolutely, yeah. So so you had mentioned it. I run a what I call a mainframe culture, and this is probably trendy language. I run a mainframe culture brand called Seven Nines. It's the word seven, the number nine, and the letter S. Right? If you have to explain it, it's not a good name. But anyway, <laughs> it's, it's it's kind of a reference to <clears throat> well, it is a reference to the availability and uptime of you know Z systems. Right? You get Seven Nines of availability. Um, the whole reason that I kind of created this this idea of a quote-unquote mainframe culture brand was because I wanted the next generation of people to be able to identify as being a mainframer without having to identify with what some people experience mainframers to be. Not that there's anything wrong with mainframers, right? That was Go on very to very delicately um, said. I just want to applaud <laughs> and, you for that. Yeah, exactly. It's I, I, I play a little bit of politics every once in a while, right? And I've like I said, I've been building bridges for my entire career. And so I've gotten a bit um bit good at dancing around some <laughs> difficult subjects. Um, but in this case, if you go out to some of these forums out there and ask for help for somebody, you will just get completely roasted because you haven't read the pop or something like that. Right. And that was not the culture that I wanted people to experience when they get into mainframes. I wanted them to experience helpfulness, kindness, and, and at least looking at things through the lens of what's capable and possible today as opposed to what was capable and possible in like 1986 for example <clears throat> and i say that because i used to run a job a compressed job that was written in 1986 before i was born um and i found it odd <laughs> thanks i found that the whole experience to be strange i was like there's so nothing has changed between now and 1986 that i can literally use this job the 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 creation date was literally i think may of 1986 and and I would just change the name of the data set and I'd do a sub can and you don't want to mess with that, that timestamp, right? And it just worked <laughs> and it just functioned. So the culture I was trying to create was like, how can we do things? And people are skeptical. When I saw a job from 1986, I was skeptical. I was like, there's no better way to do this. Um, there's it, This hasn't changed since then. And I'm okay with a simple compressed job. Don't get me wrong, but I, I can't imagine that like, 
the ls command for for linux has changed a whole terribly lot since it was conceived um but i didn't like the idea that you had to read the entire principles of operation in order to even ask a question and someone would just throw an entire manual at you and say your answer is in here best of luck to you (laughs) yeah so so i was trying to be an advocate for a culture that would have a dialogue with people hey i'm trying to compress this this pdse or whatever which you don't compress pdses i'm trying to compress this pdf so you you just saved yourself an inbox (laughs) exactly that's why i've learned because i'm going to get roasted if i said oh i'm trying to compress this pdse people will People will just Actually. jump all over me. <laughs> exactly. And that's the culture <laughs> I'm fighting against. I right. want someone to kindly say, hey, you know, well, PDSEs don't actually be compressed. You probably meant PDS or whatever, some kind way of saying that, right? So so that's what the Systems E Enthusiast Discord is all about. And I would be gratefully appreciative if you all would share a link with that in the show notes or something. I can provide that for you uh, because – it's just a place where you can ask a question without somebody jumping down your throat because you haven't done the work. Yeah. Because people don't people don't interact that way anymore. Could you imagine walking into like a restaurant and asking for a recommendation and they're like, "Well, did you read the menu?" It's like, <laughs> well, "No, I just want to know what you, what you think," you know? <laughs> and and so that's what the System and Z Enthusiast Discord was, and I've kind of gone off on a tangent here because I was initially talking about seven nines and the system C enthusiast discord was a part of this whole initiative of seven nines, which is this concept of mainframe culture, because I felt like as a mainframer, a mid tenure mainframer, I missed out on the culture of mainframes. I talked to my, my colleagues as they were retiring and some of them that are still on the cusp of retirement. And they'll tell you, dozens upon dozens of really fun, interesting stories about the way life used to be in the data center. You know, how they lost their hearing to impact printers and how they used to to throw tape rings and, and play games <laughs> or they would hide uh, beverages under the raised floor to keep them cold or whatever, right? They just had these stories that they would tell. And as a mid-tenure mainframer, I didn't have that culture. I wasn't a part of that data center lifestyle. I wasn't a part of any of that. I was just this whole different lost generation of people who interacted with computers over TCPIP, and I didn't get to be a part of that. And then I kind of contrasted that to to like infosec culture, which is a culture that I really like to be a spectator of, and I think a lot of computer enthusiasts like to be a spectator of infosec culture because they're always throwing jokes around, they're always like trying to be really cool and and. And that's exciting and fun. And I was like, well, why can't I create a culture for people to say, hey, yeah, I'm a mainframer and that's really cool. So that was what Seven Nines became a part of, uh, or became kind of <clears throat> centered on, right? And so then I started making like t-shirts that said like things like mainframe culture is alive and well, things that I wouldn't be ashamed to wear out in public, right? Um, and, and I think that that was, that was really the idea behind it. And that's where it all kind of birthed from. So that's the story of Seven Nines. And, and I'll say it. We do have a website. It's sevennines.com. That's S-E-V-E-N-9-S.com. And that's going to link you to pretty much everything I've talked about. I try to do mixed media through it. So apparel, stickers, 
Um, I've written articles under a seven nines banner. I've written articles for, for the Theropod publication, which is really exciting. And I have aspirations to do more with it, with like video content and, and all sorts of different cool mainframing culture things. So, so that's, that's my plug. If, if you will. That's awesome. That's awesome. And we have gone pretty far. Um, and I don't know if Jeff's going to be able to cut this down to um, anything shorter. So I might have to leave in all your computer sound effects. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> all right. But I really appreciate you, you spending some time, Steve, talking to us. I think this is kind of what I was thinking about when, when, when I originally asked you to come talk because I, I I wanted people to see that that if you're mid-career, you could still be really excited about this. You know, when you get to be my age, it's hard to be excited about anything. But, you know, that, that throughout the career, having having that excitement um, can still be there. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm grateful to be a part of it. And I have ruined a number of uh road trips listening to terminal talk either on my headphones or on the speakers of the car so i've always <laughs> had at least an aspiration to to get on and chat with you all and it's it's been an absolute pleasure and if if the if i can dispense any parting advice to people for for new tenure i would say make sure you do what you love make sure everything you do is fun and exciting to you uh for for mid tenure folks like myself just keep trying to build that legacy uh making making things better for others. And for late tenure people, you know, we love the heritage stories. We love to hear all of the things that made you excited about computing, but you deserve to find that excitement in your career all the way through until the end. So make sure you're having fun too, while sharing all of that hard-earned knowledge. Because we, mid-tenure, early tenure, we appreciate the, the history lessons because it's interesting and it's fun for us to learn, especially if we're excitable about the platform. So I would just hope that people can continue to do those things. Awesome. Thank mm. you. Old Man Charlie, run us out. You've been listening to Terminal Talk with Frank and Jeff. For questions or comments, or if you have a topic you'd like to see covered on a future episode, direct all correspondence to contact at terminaltalk.net. That's contact at terminaltalk.net. Until the next time, I'm Charlie Lawrence, signing off.